Welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. If you think you need a lawyer, you probably do. Hey, Cops and Writers. Thanks for being here with us today for episode number four of the Cops and Writers podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I'm your host for the show. Today, we're going to the crime lab with our special guest, forensic DNA analyst, Melissa Krakemeyer. If you write stories that involve forensic science and want to get your facts straight regarding this often misunderstood field of police science, this episode is for you. Melissa Krakemeyer is a former forensic DNA analyst turned science educator and freelance editor. As a forensic scientist, one of her favorite things was teaching attorneys, law enforcement, juries, nurses, and students how forensic science worked. Melissa explains the misconceptions and misrepresentations of this science common on television shows, books, and in the movies. Melissa will also take us on her journey into how she got into this fascinating field of forensic science. All this and more in today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. Hello and welcome, Cops and Writers, to the Cops and Writers Podcast. Today, our guest is Melissa Krakemeyer. I said that right, didn't I, Melissa? Yes. Yay. All right. Melissa Krakmeyer is a former forensic DNA analyst turned science educator and freelance editor. As a forensic scientist, one of her favorite things was teaching attorneys, law enforcement, juries, nurses, and students how forensic science worked. This love of teaching and enthusiasm for science led her to move overseas to teach international students in China and the Republic of the Marshall Islands for three years. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. All right. I was going to start out with, obviously, you are a scientist, you're a teacher. Um, how did this love of science start? When did it start? Oh, the love of science? Well, that started when I was younger. I grew up on a farm in the Midwest, and my mom had field guides, you know, that like list all the like trees and flowers and bugs. And so I would just take the books and go around and try and find all the stuff in the books. And she had like dinosaur books and all sorts of stuff, but I'm very naturally nosy and inquisitive. And did so you I want to know why stuff happened. Did you find any dinosaurs? Um, I did not find any dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, okay. No. All right. No dinosaur bones or anything like that. No, no, <laughs> no archaeological digs going on at the Krakenmeyer home. No, sometimes we played in like the mud and did stuff, but yeah, no digging or anything. So, <laughs> okay, sorry. All right. So, um, were your parents scientists or? No, my dad is a farmer. He raises okay. beef cattle. All right. So I like, I like steak. And then, uh, <laughs> my mom, she worked, she worked when we were younger, but then she's, she, we, I'm the oldest of five kids. So. Oh. After a while, she stayed home, but she does all of like the office managing and the bookkeeping at the at the feed yard. Okay, so they must have a fairly large did, farm. She did, yeah, it's pretty big. But she actually she did teach science for oh, a while. See, so I might have gotten that from her. Yeah, aha, we're uncovering some things here. Um, yeah. So, did she teach in high school or college? Or I don't. I think she taught. At the college level? I honestly don't remember. I'll have to ask her. Okay. All right. So maybe mom kind of pushed you in the right direction, and you were the firstborn, so maybe you're going to be uh, the yeah. prodigy of mom. So this makes sense. It's all The picture is getting very clear here. All right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, obviously you went to school in the Midwest, and where did you go to college? So I went to college and got my bachelor's in biology from Ripon College in Ripon, Wisconsin. I do know that college. Yes. I and they have Ripon good cookies, too. They, those are good. Yeah, there's a little outlet factory in town. You can go, like, they have samples sitting out. So you nice. Can go eat them. Yeah. Yeah. Then I worked after I graduated. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like, I majored in science, and I knew I love science. I'm like, I think I want to work in a research laboratory. So Okay. I applied and I worked for two years at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in their School of Veterinary Medicine in a research oh, lab with okay. parasites. 
So they did like ex- all the scientists did experiments. And so I essentially, I was like the office and lab manager. So I like kept it organized. I did all the ordering, all the safety stuff. Um, and I also did some lab work. So that's where I was introduced to like DNA molecular biology. Okay. But I knew that's not what I wanted to do long term. So I Googled, I was just looking at job postings and I saw one for a forensic DNA analyst. And I had always loved mystery. Like I love Nancy Drew and Matt Lock and <laughs> okay. all those shows. <laughs> Matt Lock. Oh, oh God. Oh yeah. I love Matt Lock. <laughs> um, so I would, oh, so I just, I did more research about it and then I decided that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't have the right schooling like the right educational background. So in order to be a forensic DNA analyst, you have to have, I mean, I had the bachelor's in natural science, so you have to have that. But you need coursework in molecular biology, genetics, and biochemistry. So I was missing two. So I went and, and, and a lot of people choose to get their master's degree. So I went to, I applied for grad school. And so I went to the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth. And so my official major was I, get, I now have a master's degree in biomedical science with an emphasis in forensic genetics. So what brought you down to Texas from Wisconsin? Why not just get your master's there? Um, well, I just I really liked that program. So there's not a oh, lot okay. of forensic programs out there. And like I knew I wanted to do forensic DNA and okay. that program. It's actually it, a couple of the professors have kind of moved on, I think. So there, it's actually sadly not being offered. I think last year was the last. It was a good program. So I'm kind yeah. of sad about it. But cool. I wanted, I knew what I wanted to do, and I wanted to be specifically trained for that. And so, yeah, I moved to Texas for two years. So okay, well, you gotta like Texas. <laughs> so you moved to Texas. You get your education. Where did that take you? Like, what was the next step? So as I was getting ready to graduate, you know, you start doing, well, I did my internship. That was a requirement of our degree was you had to have an internship. So I did that at the University of, or no, Illinois State Police Research and Development Laboratory Okay. in uh, Springfield. So I spent like 12 weeks there doing an internship on mitochondrial DNA and hairs in a forensic context. And then I had been applying because it was graduation time. And I actually saw an opening in my home state, which was Nebraska, the Nebraska State Patrol. I okay. also applied to other jobs. So I did interviews and everything. And I got offered two two jobs. And so I ended up choosing. I've been away from home for about eight years. So I'm like, well, I'll move back and get be closer to my family. Sure. And so I worked at the forensic or the uh, Nebraska State Patrol Crime Lab in the biology section for seven years. Okay. And then... I did, you know, I liked teaching and testifying and all that. And then after the crime lab, that's when I spent a year in China and then two years in the Marshall Islands. And then I was in Maui for three and a half years. And when I moved to Maui, that's when I started editing. Okay. So You've been everywhere. Look at you. I've, I've been around. Yeah, I would say that's a whole lot of traveling. And we might dig into that a little bit more. So oh. <laughs> when you... When you got out of uh, college and your first job was working in a lab, uh, that was at the state level? or It was at the University of Wisconsin. So I was a, an employee of the state of Wisconsin. Okay. And no. the agency was the university. Okay. When you started doing, you graduated from your master's. And oh, grad then, school. Yeah, oh. grad school. So you're out of grad school and then you went to, uh, your first job was, which one again? I'm sorry. The State Patrol Crime Lab. So okay, yeah, so it was the state lab. Yeah. So that was the state lab. So this is in Nebraska. So if Omaha PD needed something analyzed, everything went there, or how did that work? Yes and no. So that's actually one of the things I wrote down. Okay. Um, as far as where people send stuff, but yeah. So anyone in the state could send evidence to the crime lab, and then we process it for free. Um, wow. And we're the only we're the only public lab. Okay. We were. I mean, I guess I'm not, I don't work there anymore, but they right. are the only public lab that doesn't charge. There is a private lab at the University of Nebraska Medical Center mm-hmm. where you can pay and then you can uh, get your evidence analyzed there. But okay. it, And it's faster, but you have to pay. So there's – and it's know. not cheap. Either like, no, none of this. None of this it's is cheap. Per sample, and it's yeah, and if and if it's a homicide or a big assault case, there's a lot of items. So you're talking if you did all the stuff, like tens of thousands of dollars. So. Okay. 
Yeah, that's something people don't realize is, you know, it costs money to run a police department. And that's one of the many facets that, you know, it it comes out of. And, I mean, we'll get into some of the misconceptions and some of the fallacies when it comes to DNA and the sciencey stuff (laughs) that comes along with it. And, you know, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll look at that also. So... You work at the science lab. What exactly did you do there? Like, walk me through, like, a day at the science lab. What do you do? Oh, I have a blog post about all of our duties as forensic scientists. But, okay. Um, so we did, obviously, we did casework, but that's o- that was only about 60% of what we did. Okay. So there's a lot of, um, the forensic field is pretty highly regulated and DNA, we have a whole nother set of standards that we have to follow. So there's the blanket standards um, for accreditation okay. that everyone has to follow. And then DNA has some, what, what are some, exa- what are some examples of that? You have to have a directives manual, like with every single oper- standard operating procedure. And then okay. you have to set up procedures for quality control and quality assurance. And so like with every batch of DNA samples, we had to run a negative control to check the reagents to make sure those weren't contaminated with DNA. And okay. we had to run a positive control. And if that had to work to show that everything was working properly. Okay. And then, but you have to have, and we have to do maintenance. Like, like I was in charge. We had a robot that helped <laughs> automate the setting up of some of our samples. So I okay. was, in, I had, special, I had special training on it. So, I was in charge of the maintenance for that, like the monthly maintenance, and then I had to do backups of all the data. So as far as a robot goes, when I think of robot, oh. I think of Lost in Space, you know, the old TV oh, no, show. No, no. <laughs> He's like going around. Yes, on E.T. or not E.T. R2-D2, nothing like that. Yeah. Oh, okay, so nothing cool that it's could like. It's a robotic arm. Oh. Like, pick up liquid, move it to another well and like mix up the stuff for us and then okay. it would go pick up the sample and put it in the well see so i was kind of hoping of a... i was hoping it would be something that could bring you coffee and like donuts and no. stuff like that no, it, no that would be a police like robot oh robot bring me coffee and donuts and donuts yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so okay so you're in charge of the robot and so like a typical day is you get to work and, like, what's waiting for you? What does it look like? So DNA, it depends. So it depended on where in the DNA process that you are. Okay. So the beginning of the process is you get all the evidence, and you have to, you know, set it out, and you have to look at it and see what body fluids are there. And so you have to do all these screening tests, and you have to do a lot of documentation. And so, like, if it's a homicide, you tend to look for blood, you know, so you mm-hmm. do all your tests, document it. And if it's negative the case is packaged up and sent back. If you have items for DNA testing, then you're, you go into the DNA lab. And then, so the first part of the DNA testing is you have to get the DNA out of the cells. Then you have to see how much is there. Then you have to make copies of it. So if you heard of touch DNA. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that's one of the reasons now that it's called PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, because we have that, we can get DNA profiles from lower level samples Okay. And touch DNA has its has a whole thing. I wrote a post about it, I think. Um, yeah. It has a whole bunch of stuff about what to consider when you do that kind of it. Of, yeah. Of when when I was working, you know, DNA would come into play a couple of different ways. One is you get a buccal swab of somebody. You can get a, a warrant for that, or sometimes they volunteer one, and that it looks like a giant Q-tip. It looks like the COVID test Q-tip. Mm-hmm. A long. Yeah. yeah, it's the long Q-tip, yeah. Yeah, and you just swab the inside of the person's cheek. They open up their mouth, <clears throat> swab the cheek, and then you put it like in a test tube thing, and you seal it up, and you send it to the crime lab. So when you get that, what would you do with it? So that, so I have to back up a little. So that sure. is what we consider a reference sample. So okay. the process I was describing, so we make copies, and then we put it on the genetic analyzer, and we get a DNA profile from that, and we have to analyze the data. So we get a profile from the unknown, which is from the crime scene. Like, we don't know whose DNA this is. Sure. Then what you described is what we call a reference sample. And so we take that, and it's a known. We know who the the source of that DNA is. So we take the crime scene sample and the reference sample, and then we put them side by side, and then we compare. Okay. So obviously, you get a sample from... 
most of the time you're probably going to be dealing with major crimes, homicide, sexual assault, maybe like a bank robbery. I mean, we would do touch DNA for lower level stuff, but you know, you would expect that it would come back in a couple of months. You know, you're not going to have an instant, you know, yeah, hit the, on that. My old lab, it's way longer than that. I've okay. talked to some people, I'm like, whoa, that's long. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those are like the major ones. And, you know, you're at a crime scene and the forensic technologist, the the, the CSI person, I guess, lack of better words, will collect, you know, like say uh, a bank robber put his ungloved hand on this really nice surface, you know, in front of the teller. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, they're, they're trying to get DNA off of that, but you, you can't get DNA and fingerprints off the same. You can't do both. Sometimes they would just have to, it's like, okay, this is better for fingerprints. It's like, okay, do fingerprints then. Did your lab accept that kind of evidence? Like we, Mm -hmm. if it's like a high traffic, like, cause everyone's going to have, Possibly, you have to rule out anyone else who's touched that surface. Yeah, the reason why so, we, the reason why we would do that is you look at the video, and they were the last person to touch it. So we're like, okay, he's and the crime scene's guarded. So hopefully, you know, their DNA is going to be on there. Um, also, like soda cans, Slurpee straws. Soda cans are good because they're yeah. straight from them. But like I would consider like a bank counter. I don't know if our if our like each lab has their own policies. I don't sure. know if we would have oh, okay. accepted that. <laughs> yeah, you know, cigarette butts, uh, soda cans, beer cans, um, any stuff. Yeah, like those that. are all good. Yeah, we would uh, we would definitely um, go after those. So you're going to have some a very common misconception is you know. You get your uh, sample from the police at a crime scene that's collected, and then boom, you know, magically you have this person's information that, you know, da-da-da. And if they've never given a sample of DNA, then it's just DNA, right? I mean, I don't. you have to have it matched to something. For da- Yeah, for database purposes, like, if you get a sample and you don't have a reference sample to compare uh, the reference, to, yes. it's just, it, just, it just sits there. And if it qualifies for CODIS entry, then you can, you can put it into CODIS mm-hmm. and see if you get a hit from anyone in there. But if, the, if right. they're not in CODIS, then you're not going to get anything. What is CODIS? CODIS stands for the Combined DNA Index System. Okay. So it's pretty complicated, but basically... States can collect samples from convicted offenders. Right. It, and so those go in, and each state, it's different about what qualifies to go in correct, there. Correct, correct. And then you can also, so you can link a crime scene sample to somebody, and you can also link crime scenes. So you can link crimes together because, like I did a case, it was one of my favorite cases because this guy was robbing um, like convenience stores, and he loved Powerade. So he would drink Powerade and leave. I think he liked cherry and he would leave it at the crime scene. And so, and then he also went into Iowa also. And so I put, we put all these profiles in the CODIS. And so they linked together within Nebraska. And then they also, since they qualified for the national level, um, linked to both Iowa and Nebraska. And so they formed this like task force. Yeah. Did the FBI get involved in that? I think it was regional. I think it was just like. The sheriff's departments and the people in Iowa, I'm not sure if the DCI, the yeah. Department of Criminal Investigation, I think is what Correct. their state level mm-hmm. called. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that was a while ago. That was kind of my third year out of seven. I think that happened. Okay. But they talked about it in the paper, I remember. <laughs> well, that's cool. You're a celebrity. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just to recap, you know, you have to have some kind of reference just magically, you know, I don't think I, I did one of those twenty three and Me, you know, DNA kits oh, for yeah. your like genealogy. They plans to do that, yeah. And it was, yeah, big shock. I'm like ninety eight percent Irish. No way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Both my parents were born there. I'm like, I hope so. So, and I'm very Neanderthal according to them as well. Uh, mm. I have a whole lot of. I think it was like eighty six percent more Neanderthal DNA than most people do. 
And I'm like, interesting. Yeah, so, but it makes a lot of sense. It doesn't take a lot of stuff to make me happy. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. I, I'm very uh, basic kind of guy. So yeah, that, yeah. that makes <laughs> that makes a ton of sense. Just ask my friends. Um, you have a reference, you know, and there's certain ways that you can get a reference, and that's you know, buccal swabs. You know, there's certain offenders that have to give up their uh, DNA. Uh, as a cop, you can get a search warrant and force them to get the DNA. Uh, probably one of the more one of the more I don't want to use the word popular, but used most often or very often would be sexual assaults with uh, rape kits. And, yes. You know, you would bring the if you had a, an alleged offender and their DNA was not on file, they would have to get swabbed. And pretty quickly, yeah. Yeah. And then the victim would also go through, they would get swabbed, and there's a medical professional, you know, they're highly trained people that do these, we call them rape kits. I think they're called uh, different things in different jurisdictions. We call them sexual assault kits. Okay, yeah. I think rape kit was what we would call it, but, you know, when you're talking to a victim, it would be, you know, a sexual assault kit or post-sexual assault kit or something like that. But it involved a, a medical exam from a nurse and a doctor. Did you have a lot of, to con- of contact with that kind of stuff? Yes. So we had that was when I first started. Like sexual assaults were our highest case type. Okay. As I was there longer, we started getting more property crimes. But okay. um, yeah. So for sexual assault kits, so we called them sane nurses. So they did the majority of the exams. And so mm-hmm. I, we would go to trainings and actually teach the same nurses how to collect, okay, um, how to collect the stuff so that it's, it's good for, for us. And they, they asked a lot of questions and okay. I was also the crime lab representative on the, it was the Lancaster County um, sexual assault response team. So they had people like, so they had people from the sheriff's office, the police department, crime lab, victim advocates and sane nurses. And we were, we would meet once a month and kind of talk about stuff or upcoming trainings and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, without getting too gory, I guess, uh, what exactly would you tell them? Like what's best practices, you know, like what, what should they be doing or what to expect? We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by the thrilling audiobook Avenging Adam, book one in the FBI K-9 thriller series written by author Jody Burnett. Sparks fly between hotshot FBI agent Rick Sanchez and no-nonsense FBI K-9 handler Kendra Dean as they chase a ruthless serial killer. Witness an electrifying blend of suspense, romance, and redemption, where internal conflicts challenge our heroes as much as their target does. Will they catch the killer before it's too late? Grab Avenging Adam now. It's more than a story. It's an experience. Get 50% off the Avenging Adam audiobook at jody-burnett.com forward slash cops and writers. Well, this isn't just for sane nurses. We also told police officers, like, label everything very clearly, you know, and we recommended, like, four swabs for the different orifices. So they would do a vaginal, rectal, and oral swabs. Sure. And then they're like, well... How do we do the fingernails or what's basically what's the best practice? And, mm-hmm. you know, should we still collect, do hair combings and all of that, that stuff. So, and okay. when the, when all these, not just sexual assaults, but when the cases come into the lab, based on the case scenario you're given and the type of case that it is, you start out looking for certain things. Okay. So like in a robbery, we don't look for the presence of semen. Okay. Right? So it's just, it depends on what you're all trying to do and so what you're looking for. as far as getting dna just you know i remember one time we got a uh, felon in possession case where this Ooh. person was wearing a bulletproof vest and he was running from the police and he was peeling the vest <laughs> because he was a felon and it it went under that um state statute where you can't wear a you can't own or wear a bulletproof vest if you're a convicted felon. So oh, he's running okay. from the police after. Yeah, so he he dumps the vest 
and he dumped the hoodie that he had on over it as he's running. They're very good at like shedding clothing as they run from the police. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like it's like you go to criminal school for that because that's pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that's all. Yeah. No, and we were able to take it, you know, it went to the crime lab and they got DNA off of that. And he was a convicted felon, so they had his DNA on record. So it didn't take, you know, Sherlock Holmes to figure out, yeah, you're the dude. You know, and the coppers saw them so they could ID him. You know, he got away. But, yeah, just, you know, that was just one example of how DNA helped us out. Um, another... I forgot about felon in possession. I forgot. We got a lot of guns from oh, felon yeah. in possession. Oh. And then the profile, that was it's touch DNA, so the profiles are so all over the place for that. You would get the firearms themselves, or how would yeah. that work? Okay. Oh, and it depends. Like, the, the bigger agencies... Some of, they would send swabs and okay. then, but yeah, I handled all kinds of weapons like knives and tasers and guns and so you all get sorts a, of stuff. Say you get a pistol. What would you do with it? Like, what would the um, procedure be? You're the scientist, you know. Well, so a pistol, but what kind of case is it? Is it a felon in possession case? Is it an assault? Is it a homicide? Let's say it's a homicide. Let's go with homicide. That's that's the funnest. Oh well, do you have see? Because I keep getting. It kind of depends on what you need to do. Like, sure. are we looking to see, like, was it left at the crime scene and we want to swab the handle for touch DNA to see who left Correct. it there? Yeah, or we'll do that. Used, like, I've gotten, like, pistol whip where, like, we ah. look for hand, hand, or touch DNA here and the other person on the other end. So, like, right. there's right. so much to, there like, is. all the case scenario. And then if yeah. we don't have enough information, we'd have to call the, the submitting agency to get mm-hmm. more info. Okay. Um, but yeah, so if it was in a homicide and what scenario, like a pistol whip? Uh, no, let's, let's, let's say the person's shot, he was running, and cops got there, he's running from the police, and like 90% of the time the bad guy tosses the gun if the police are chasing him. It, that happens oh, a lot. Okay. So he tosses it, and the coppers recover the pistol. And the okay, bad guy gets so away. Or doesn't even get would... away. It's just one more nail in the coffin for a conviction. Okay, so we're looking to try and tie the gun to the guy holding it. Correct. And possibly the, the crime itself. So yes. we would probably look for touch DNA on the handle. And depending on how far away they are, we could possibly, if there's any blood, like we would probably look for blood on there also. Okay, so if it was like point, quote unquote, point blank range, Pretty close, the yeah. blood of the victim would be um, on there as well. There'd be blowback. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah. 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 But as far as, like, the handle of the pistol, the trigger, the trigger housing, and maybe even, like, the magazine, if you had to load it at one point in time or, you know, any of that. So what would you do with the lab? So what are the steps that you would do? Like in the screening process where we're... Yeah, so you get it from... Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So we'd have to... So DNA, we are very... It's part of the quality control, quality assurance practices that we do. So we have to... We have to put, everyone knows what PP is, PPE is now. After yes, we do. COVID, but we have to put on our lab coat and gloves, and then we would have to bleach down and decontaminate the surface on all of our tools. Then we lay bench paper down. Then we would get the, usually guns would come in cardboard boxes. Mm-hmm. So we would then have to open, we took our notes on a computer in a specific program. So we would document the outside packaging. And, okay. like, so this is one sealed brown paper bag labeled, and then we put the label. Mm-hmm. And then we would open it, not breaking the officer's seal. So we would go into a different area and oh, okay. go there. Mm-hmm. And then we would, I would take it out, put it on the bench. Then I would take some more notes. Like, what, what do I see? Do I see any visual staining? Or you just kind of look at it. Mm-hmm. And, like, for a gun, you know, what... Uh, if there's a model, like sometimes they're they're stamped on there, or if there's a sure. serial number. So the make, the model, serial number, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, and then like sometimes they're like have scratches and stuff mm-hmm. on them. So we just have to document everything. And then we would, we might do this at the beginning or at the end, depending on where we want to swab it. Um, we would mark it so that later on in court, the attorney will show you, you know, do you recognize this item? They're like, like yes, I do. How do you recognize it? By the my initials on the handle. Okay. So you have to every time you look at something, you have to initial it. 
You initialed the gun itself? Yeah. What would you initial it with? Uh, Sharpie. Really? Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So if it's a dart gun, probably a silver Sharpie. <laughs> okay. And then and then we would start the testing. So in the scenario you did in the scenario you described, I would probably check the handle to see if I saw any uh, red brown staining okay. under like a lot of light to okay. see if I could see because on a dart gun it's hard to see blood, so you kind of want to look real close. And if I didn't see anything, I might do a little bit. Actually, what I would probably do is swab the whole area for touch DNA, and then I can test that swab for blood. Okay. So I can test this. I can use another swab to test the swab I use. Actually, now that I think about that, and then I could then you document all the results of your. It's called presumptive testing. Okay. So it it, it, it indicates that it's um, possibly the body fluid, but it doesn't confirm it. Okay. And and uh, then I would look at for the rest of the gun and see if there's mm-hmm. any blood on the. Okay. Like the, I forget the name of the part that sticks out. Okay. (laughs) And then what, just like oils from a person's finger or perspiration, would that be transferred onto the pistol and you'd be able to get DNA off of that? Or how does that work? Yeah. So touch DNA would have like, there's something called naked. It's like cell free DNA. So it's not like hanging out in in the cell, Um, but there's also like your DNA is found inside your cell, inside something called the nucleus. That's where all the DNA is packaged in your chromosomes. Yeah. And so when you touch surfaces, you you leave your DNA behind. And But you know, it dep- I did a study on this, and I presented it at a conference. Like, certain items are better for DNA than others. Sure. Guns were hit or miss. Um, but, like, something like that sweatshirt, they wore it for a long time, and it's kind of like a rough surface. Mm-hmm. So they're, you're probably going to get... Or like a hat, we would do the inside brand oh, sure. of hats. Yeah, we yeah I've collected more and than gloves, one hat. Like robbers and thieves, they would leave gloves behind. So right. we would take the swab and like stick it in all the fingers and swab it around and ah. get DNA from that too. So very cool. So you uh, you you would swab the pistol and try to get as much stuff off of that as possible, and then what yeah. would happen? Then I, we would let the swabs dry. Okay. And then we would um, take our samples for DNA, and we would put them in these little test tubes. They're um, 1.5 milliliters, so they're really little. And we okay. label everything. And then we would transfer the uh, samples for DNA over to the room where the DNA process happened. Okay. And then we would, that's just one item in a homicide. There's never just one item. So right, right. We would, yeah. So then we would take the sample for DNA, put it in a tube. It's a tube rack. So we have these little tubes and you just, you know, they all line up in these little mm-hmm. racks in the, and they put it in the fridge to store it. Then I would evidence and then put that to the side. And then I would take off all my PPE and then I would throw away the bench paper that I put on the bench. And then I'd have to decontaminate all my tools. Okay. And all that stuff, and then I'd go get the next item. Oh, okay. Maybe. So you just keep on repeating the same thing over and over and over. Yeah, pretty much. And then each item is different. I mean, you like every time we get a knife, I we tend to look for blood and possibly touch DNA. You know, sure. so like as you do more, you kind of have a system. But it always depends on what the scenario is, and I don't think people know that. Like mm-hmm. when you watch TV, they just go and they. Do, they find exactly what they need right at the specific time. <laughs> it's of the really show. cool it's really how that happens. Yes, forward. yes, it is. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of Lucifer, and I'm <laughs> in LA, and I'm like, no, that is not. I mean, I love that show, but like, that is not how it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh boy! Now, what pops into my head is, you know, trying to get DNA off of a victim. So, say you have a homicide or a sexual assault where somebody you know was trying to fight off their attacker and oftentimes you're going to find it like in fingernails if they were like digging into the suspect's skin does that work pretty good or how does that work my experience with fingernails wasn't great it's better if instead of touching a we're looking for blood but a lot of the times the blood is the victim's own blood okay but like for a you know for a story for a fiction novel you right can certainly right. you know it's your book you can definitely have that as as uh, an option Okay. In the real world, it's not too common, but 
Okay. But yeah, we would try, you know, yeah, when the, definitely. when an investigator came from the medical examiner's office, they always bagged up the hands with brown paper bags. And that was one of the reasons. I don't think we even do gunshot residue anymore. Did you have any experience with that? Um, they they would do the so my old lab specifically they would do distance determination, so like they would put something and see like shoot the gun at different lengths to see. Okay. I forget exactly what they were looking for, but they didn't like they didn't test people's hands like they would rub it with some wipe or something and then test it for GSR. They didn't do that at my yeah. lab. Yeah, I don't think it's as common as it. It is not. Okay, no. yeah. It used to be, but it, it it just isn't anymore. I don't think it was as reliable as everybody kind of wished it was. Yeah. Um, speaking of dead people, uh, <laughs> did yes. you did you ever uh, go to any autopsies or crime scenes where you no. would try and? Uh, do you know of any of your I'm, cohorts that do that or? Yeah, so I was actually going to do a future YouTube video on this because I get that a lot. Like, how can I become a CSI? So there's three ways to become a crime scene investigator. You're a okay. civilian, and then you apply, and you're a civilian, and you go out to crime scenes, and it's your full-time job. You are a sworn officer, such as yourself. And, mm-hmm. you know, like in, in Nebraska, they don't have a crime scene team. So they didn't have – there's no CSIs. And in Douglas County, where Omaha is, they do have a – people there but everywhere okay. else it okay. was the detectives and the investigators in the it's divided into troop areas okay so the okay. investigator assigned to that crime scene he would test it oh or she oh. yeah whatever it was so that's who would pull and they they had special training um okay and like we would actually go train them sure um, and like how to use like the uv light to you know collect like bedding or stuff like that. So yeah, so they would, so that's another way to be a crime scene person. And then a third way to become a crime scene investigator is you work at a crime lab that you go to crime scenes. So like Iowa, they have a volunteer, you can volunteer to go to crime scenes. If you, if you're a forensic scientist, that's their state lab. Okay. Well, so, but in my specific agency, we didn't go to crime scenes and I'm, and I'm quite happy. I didn't want to go to crime scenes. Well, that's interesting because when I did my research for the first two books in the uh, Cops and Writers series, I I spoke with uh, homicide detectives from all over the country. And I had, you know, I've been to literally hundreds of homicides, you know, on the job. And the way our department worked was you would have one quote unquote CSI person. We called them forensic uh, technicians. And mm-hmm. they were all sworn law enforcement. And, you know, you, you were on the job for a while, and then you would apply for it. And for a while, you know, like, say, five, six years, somewhere in that ballpark. And if you had an interest, then they would train you on the job, and they would send you to different schools. And there were the people who would document everything, you know, with photographs, video, uh, and, again, collecting fingerprints, uh, DNA samples, all that good stuff. And you would have a homicide and you'd have one technician show up. And the homicide detective, you would have a team of detectives, actually, like maybe, say, four to six detectives that would be on the scene. And we had, we had a 24-7 homicide division. A lot of departments don't because we had so many homicides. Like last year, I think we had yeah. 220. It was a city of 600,000. Wow. We had 220 homicides and about 900 non-fatal shootings. I think we set a record. Oh. It's crazy. But anyways, that's another story. Maybe another podcast. Who knows? But um, so you would have this team of detectives with the one CSI person and the detective that was in charge of documenting the scene would go through it with the CSI person. It's like, okay, I want overalls. I want pictures of, you know, the knife that's by the victim's head. You know, obvious stuff like that. And then they'd put up the little tents, you know, one, two, three, four, the little yellow plastic tents and you know that's how you you know differentiate the different evidence that's left on the scene and that's the way they did it now i'm interviewing a detective in another part of the country and it's like they have a team of csi people that aren't even sworn officers they're civilians and there might be like three or four csi people only two homicide detectives 
So, so the, they sent three to four people, their crime scene people, yeah, at a time? At a time. Folks, I have that on here. I have a myth, CSI team. Usually, like, yep. in Maui, they only send, like, one or two people. Like, yeah, no, they'd no have... Yeah, they'd have like a little team that would show up and there'd only be like maybe two detectives. So it was completely opposite of what I was used to. And I said, well, what do the detectives do? And they're like, well, they interview people, work on leads, you know, interrogations. And, you know, they would get an overview. You know, everybody walk, kind of does a walkthrough very carefully of the yeah. scene. <laughs> you know, I'll just start stomping through evidence. And... Yeah, it's like, okay, this is what happened. Here's kind of the story that we have right now. And then we'll go from there. Let's see which way the evidence and the scene, you know, points us in whatever direction. And like where I work, the homicide detectives, once everything was documented, they would physically take the evidence. Whereas you have other jurisdictions, you know, around the country that it's the opposite. The CSI person will bag it up and take it and, and inventory it. Whereas where I work, it's going to be your detective that does that. So their roles are you know a little bit different, and it's funny because I have a friend who was a copper where I worked, and he went out west because he hated the cold. And um, he said, yeah, it's totally different. He says, all of our CSI people are non-sworn. He said, it's kind of like millennials yeah. that enjoy doing <laughs> this. Out yeah, yeah. yeah, and he said, they're yeah, so happy. Yeah. You see a lot of that. I think on and subconsciously, I think that's one of the reasons I was like, okay with leaving forensics because I mean, it it sounds I had to read firsthand accounts of sexual assaults every day because part of the sexual assault kit is the victim's description. And it's just and then there's like crimes with kids and it. Oh, I don't know. You know, like it's just. Oh, I do know. Yeah. The bad part of humanity. And, you know, I grew up you know, in a small town in Nebraska where nothing bad ever happened. And I'm like, look at all this bad. I like, like, I know it happens now. It's just, I'm not like all up in it anymore. And I'm, I think I'm okay with that actually. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it's different when you're getting clubbed over the head with it on a regular basis. Yeah. yeah that I, just... For like five years, I stopped reading murder mysteries. So I was like, well, I see it every day. I right. don't really need to read it anymore. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Well, tell you what, um, the Facebook group, Cops and Writers, you put in uh, a request for some questions. Do you have those oh, handy? I have them over here. Okay, so, why don't we go through some of those real quick. Okay. I'm going to start at the very bottom because this was a, this is an easy answer. So okay. <laughs> Fal- Fallon, he asked, or she, I'm not sure. Um, can DNA be pulled off a licked, sealed envelope that arrived in the mail? Uh, yes. Um, I, for envelopes, we had to steam them open. Um, and then we would cut pieces of like, we open the flap and then that gummy part along the, the edge. Um, we went up into little squares and we put it into the test tube and then we would take it on for DNA testing. So that's a pretty, we had a pretty high success rate. If it's one of those like self adhesive envelopes that, that wouldn't work. Sure. Sure. Um, so yeah, so that's pretty pretty common. Okay. Um, Lily asked, "How much does DNA cost the department to process, and who pays for it? Can a private person pay for their own test if the police have already submitted their own request, or if the lab is too backlogged and it's like years? It'll be years before someone can get it." Um, so there's multiple questions. So the first one: How much does DNA cost the department? So it depends. So if if it's a Whoever's doing the testing is who pays for it. So I worked at a state lab, and we had a, we have a lot of small towns in Nebraska. So they would send us stuff. The towns did not pay for it. The state patrol paid for it. Okay. Okay, but like, um, like in I don't know Milwaukee PD. Do you guys have your own? If you had your own forensic lab, like. No, we used the just... state crime lab that was in oh, Milwaukee okay. actually. So oh, you like could like a regional. Yeah, yeah, you could like go to the counter and say, "Hey, this is what I've got. This is a homicide case. You know, could you please, you know, there's a face to it now." Yeah, you know, sometimes that does help oh. a little bit. And what's ironic was I had a homicide a block away from the crime lab, <laughs> and, oh, <that's> nice. <laughs> and you know, the crime lab is a very nondistinct, you know, just brick building with no markings on it, and it's yeah, not in the best, and it's not in the best of neighborhoods. So there's cameras. Yep, and there's cameras everywhere. So 
actually their cameras helped us out a bit on this homicide. So, oh, that's funny. Yeah, oh. so it's like, okay. And actually it was officer involved. Um it was an officer involved shooting where the person died and the state crime lab came out. So some of the people that worked there literally just walked across the street. And it's like, oh, oh okay, here we are. <laughs> it's like, all right, here you are. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but let's see. So the second part, um, can a private person pay for their own test? So, like, there are several, like, dozens of private DNA labs out there. But I don't think, like, in order to submit it, you would have, like, a private citizen would have to have the evidence. But the the police agency would have the evidence so like the police aren't going to give you right and there's also a chain of evidence and there's chain of custody yeah i don't correct possible like i don't think so either i've never heard of it doing doing all that that's a whole separate thing like but a crime that's different yeah so i don't think as far as i know i don't think that's possible okay jay asked how often do police use dna evidence to solve crime these days so is it a scarce resource only used for specific types of crimes? So I think there's sort of two facets to this question. Like something that and I put this in one of my blog posts about how CSI gets it wrong, but like there are ton, like thousands of cases going through the system right now. And a, a big majority of them don't have any forensics evidence at all. And they still get convictions and they oh, still sure. go through the Yeah. Like there's so many cases out there that don't, have forensics or like one time I did a case, I think it was an assault case and I, it was a swab from somebody's face. They wanted to get the guy punched him and they wanted me to get touch DNA from the guy who punched him, but it was a blood swab. So I ended up getting the the blood of the victim on his mm-hmm. own face, but he still wanted me to testify to show like, why wouldn't the touch DNA be in there? And that acts like something I talk about in my touch DNA posts. Like, hmm. You have touch DNA and another body fluid. You're not going to get the profile from the touch DNA. Okay. The other body fluid has so much DNA, it will kind of drown out okay. the touch DNA. You won't get it. That makes sense. Um, but I still had to testify, even though my results didn't mm-hmm. show what they were trying to prove, but I still testified anyway. Okay. Um, but a lot of the results, like, I think I did probably 700 cases when I was there, and I only testified like 28 or 29 times. Like, you oh. don't. Not very a lot often. of the cases just go like our drug people. They well, just because of high volume, but they they testified all the time. Sure. Um, but yeah, so it just kind of depends on the on the case. Let's mm-hmm. see. I'm gonna skip this one. Someone asked, "How long does it take for DNA tests to produce results?" This gets asked a lot in your group. I yes, wrote a post on it, and so it de- you know there's the real life answer and the answer that you want for your book. Right. So the real life answer is a long time unless you send it to a private lab. So depending on how I think the better question to ask is how long do you want it to take? And then can you have your scene or your story set up to to get there? And so if you want like there's, I don't think it, it, even with a private lab, like you can maybe get it back in two or three days, but you have to pay the big bucks for rush fees. And okay. if it's a homicide, there's so many items that it's going to be like, you know, a small, like I noticed a lot of these crimes in these books take place in small towns. A small town agency isn't going to have 10 or 20,000 extra dollars. Right. Um, but if there's no backlog and everything goes the way it's supposed to go and like the analyst doesn't have to go back or do extra items. I'd say about a month for That's a homicide. I, Cause those, sure. I put a big note here. Homicides are beasts. Like I've made a list of stuff. Like there's such big cases with a lot of items. And if there's mm-hmm. more than two people involved, like if there's more than just the suspect and the victim, if there's multiple suspects, multiple victims, it becomes this huge, huge thing and you do more items and it's just, they, they clog up our the system, you know, like a robbery. <laughs> Those like, pesky killings, I tell you. They're just getting yeah, away. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what a lot, you know, in a murder mystery, there's always a murder, right? So right. So the big focus, but um, you okay. had kind of five to ten items and everything is okay and it went through maybe a month. If you really want it to go fast, maybe two weeks. 
if they like rush it, you can have them rush. Like we would take rush requests due to, and if they met the criteria, we would move them ahead in the, in the queue. I'm going to interrupt it real quick. Sometimes you hear rapid DNA testing. What is that? I saw that come up. So rapid DNA is good for like identifying remains. But as far as using rapid DNA on crime scene samples, the technology isn't good. Like crime scene samples, like they're special, like they might be kind of dirty and you don't know what's in them. Okay, and sure. so you, you know, they're not pretty, like when you take a, a buckle swab of someone's cheek, that's beautiful, pristine, pure DNA. But a mm-hmm. crime scene sample, there's a, they're kind of yucky. <laughs> so the rapid DNA it's not the technology is not there yet. And what it is just to back up, it's basically like a lab on a chip. And so you put a little bit of the sample into the chip, you put it into this machine and in about 90 minutes, it spits back a result. Oh. But the 90 minutes is just the runtime okay. of that specific technique. Like prior to that, you would still have to uh, like do the screening. Like what are you, what are you putting in there? Like, is it blood or you still have to look at the evidence. So like say that the turnaround time is 90 minutes. That's not accurate. So with rapid DNA, how long would it take before I'd find out that Melissa committed this homicide? Um, but well, and the, to back up even more, they're not, it's not done on crime scene samples right now. It's those samples. If they're done with rapid DNA, they cannot go into CODIS. That's what They're I not thought. Um, so like, I've heard the term rapid DNA, but we never used it at work. Um, it's good that I know. For like, and I just, I flagged this for a future blog post or video or something like Houston PD, like their board of directors at their crime lab voted to start using it, but they're going to use it like on the reference sample side. Okay. You know, cause they're not, and, and the article is actually quite good about dispelling how the rapid DNA works. Like you, you can't put the samples in CODIS and, and you could maybe, and, and we didn't go into this yet, but a big portion of the types of DNA profiles that we get are more than one person. So mm. they're called mixtures. And those are their own big set of problems. And it sounds so, like a beast, yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so rapid DNA isn't good for them. And so it's okay. called mixture interpretation. And there's all these guidelines, like if there are two people, what does it have to look like if there's three people? And then... And if it's low level and there's a lot of people, the whole sample might be deemed inconclusive and you okay. you can't exclude anyone, you can't include anyone. And so like rapid DNA, just it's not good for crime scene. Okay. Good right to know. Now, right now. All right. Yeah. Any other questions in there? There was, I think, one, one more. Oh, what a 20, I know it's a lot of cold case questions too. What a 20-year-old toothbrushes, if locked in an evidence file of a cold case, still have DNA on them. Um, yeah, they should. Um, I think as far as how long does DNA last? So there's kind of two sides. So are you talking about a human body? Cause you see news articles like, Oh, this guy was found and he's mm-hmm. 50,000 years old. And we got DNA from him. Like that's a, that's a person. Like as you and I sit here, we are full of DNA. Okay. Right? So that's one side, but then an actual crime scene sample, like an abandoned item or, or something used in the crime or whatever. I'd say probably about three decades. DNA is pretty stable. Okay. And if it's kept in proper humidity and ambient, like room temperature, mm-hmm. it should, it should be okay. And a toothbrush would probably have quite a bit of DNA on there, like from the gums. Sure. Like we cut off the bristles. We cut off like a group of bristles and we put okay. it in the, in the test tube. So cool. the problem is like, if you, if it's been, if it's really humid and really hot, that breaks down the DNA. Okay. And if, and if it's been a while, so that, that's bad for okay. DNA and it should not be packaged in any sort of plastic. So yeah, it's paper. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. If you had like bloody clothing, if you had anything like that, you know, you never wanted to put it and seal it in a plastic bag. You know, that's, yeah, no, and you have to dry it for it must be dry. Yeah, yeah we have in our in our detective bureau, they have what they call the drying room. Yep. And it there's this little cubbies and you would hang up like say you 
here's my drawing room story. I'm brand new. I'm on field training. I get sent to a stabbing. And I'm with my FTO. And I don't know anything. I, this is literally the first couple of days I'm on the job. These two girls got into a fight. And they were both juveniles. They were like 16 years old. And one stabbed the other one. Well, no, actually, they stabbed each other. But we wound up arresting one of them. I don't even remember all the particulars, but she's getting booked in, and the jail matron is like, I'm going to need your pants. You know, first you take her to the hospital. She got like four or five stitches in her thigh, but there's blood all over the um, her jeans. So we take the jeans, and my, my FTO, he, he's holding on to these jeans. They're not even in a bag. And he's like, okay, I'm going to time you. Do you know where the drying room is? And I'm like, uh, we had a tour when I was in the academy. I'm not really sure. He says, well, that's tough. He said, go find the drying room, inventory it, and come back here. And I'm like, I don't even know where the hell I am. And I'm the, I've only been here like one other time in this huge building. And, you know, obviously you have safety protocols. You can't have your gun in certain areas, you know, if you're booking somebody in, etc. cetera. Oh, and so yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I have these jeans in my head that are like covered in blood. And I'm like, there's a part of me that's going, this just isn't right. Something doesn't feel right about this. So I go down to the detective bureau, and the lieutenant that's sitting there, he's this really big dude, and I find out later he's just a super badass, always crabby, you know, whatever. And <laughs> I, I'm standing in front of his desk, and the assembly is filled with almost 100 detectives milling about doing whatever. Oh, wow. That's and he... He's looking down, you know, do, filling out some paperwork, and I'm like, excuse me, sir. And he looks at me, and he's like, and I'm holding up these bloody blue jeans, and he looks and says, what in the fuck are you doing, officer? And I'm like, um, uh, I have these jeans from a stabbing. He says, what stabbing are you talking about? And I'm like, the one that happened on Richards, blah, blah, blah. Did anybody notify the detective bureau about this stabbing? And then I'm thinking to myself, uh, no, we didn't. Uh, and he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you, O'Donnell? He's looking at my nameplate, and I'm like, um, nothing that I know of. And he says, you must be new. And I'm like, yes, sir, I'm very new. And he says, who's your FTO? And I tell him. And he's like, dumb as shit. And he's like, do you know where the drawing room is? And I'm like, sure, I really didn't, but I would just ask somebody because I just wanted to get out of this situation. And he's like, all right, here's the keys. And I'm like, okay. So I asked somebody that's over there, kid, and I'm like, Okay, so I go there after getting my ass chewed out in front of all these people, and everybody stopped what they were doing when he was like screaming yeah, to stare at me. You. Oh yeah, <laughs> and they were just laughing their asses off. It's like, aha, look at the rookie. So I'm going in this drying room, and it's filled with clothing items that are, you know, you put newspaper down on the um, on the counter, and you literally just hang it up and wait for it to dry. And you have to fill out an inventory yep. form and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm filling out <laughs> this inventory form and I run out of ink on my pen. And I'm just like, can anything else happen wrong today? So I go back to the desk <laughs> of the lieutenant. I'm like, I got nothing to lose here. And I said, sir. And he looks at me and he says, yes. I said, you happen to have another pen? I'm out of ink. And he looks at me and he's, he's going to start screaming at me. And he's like, yeah, sure thing, O'Donnell. So he gives me a pen. And I go back and I'm like, all right. So... <laughs> I go back, I find my way to the jail that's, like, on a different floor. And my FTO was like, ah, not too bad. It only took you, like, a half an hour or whatever it was. And he said, how did everything go? I said, oh, without a hitch, no problem. I didn't oh. say a word. <laughs> He's like, oh, good, good, that's good. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, All right, so, yeah. So we do have drying rooms. You know, and then, then it will get packaged and get sent off to you. So we don't send it off when it's, like, fresh and all bloody and stuff. It's blood, yeah. but it's dried blood. All right. Um, so you're watching TV or movies. What are some of the things that make you cringe the most when it comes to forensic science and what they're getting wrong? Oh, I'd have to go look at my post. I did 15 things. But I think so I've been, <laughs> I mentioned earlier, I've been watching a lot of Lucifer. Okay. So it, you don't know the show. It's the devil. He wants, doesn't want to be in charge of hell anymore. So he moves <laughs> to Los Angeles. He moves to Los Angeles, and he ends up helping this LAPD detective named Chloe. Oh God, that's funny! Solve all these crimes, and it's really it's really well done, and it's really funny. I really just like the characters, but I think the biggest thing that I see is 
obviously the timing, but like there's an episode where they need to do fingerprinting. And so Chloe happens to have a piece of chalk. So she uses that as fingerprint dust and she, you know, puts it yeah. on the, it's like a top of a plastic tote and she gets a perfect fingerprint. Of course which she does. never happens. Right. She took a picture right. on her phone nah. and she, nah. she texted it to Ella, who is the, the all-in-one forensic scientist, which doesn't exist. <laughs> and so, and then all of a sudden, she within like two seconds, she has a name and, a, and an address and, and a picture and everything. Oh, and so, how convenient. That is not how, like the databases don't pop up pictures. Right. Like, like CODIS, like if there's a hit in CODIS, you get a number that is tied like to a case. Okay. Then you look up the number in the system and then you, you look at the case file, basically, and like, you, and then in order to find a picture, you'd have to go to a separate debt. We call it NCGIS, the Nebraska mm -hmm. Justice. Yeah, yeah we use CGIS, yeah. Yeah, and so then we then a, a picture might come up there, but like we just that's not how it how it works, and so that's something that bugs me. And then I think like, and I think because it when people write their books, like it. They get it wrong because the TV gets it wrong. It's like the roles of what people are doing. Like, okay. you know, like the CSI people don't investigate the investigators and like the CSI people, <laughs> they're there to document and they're there to collect. Right. They don't get into foot chases. They don't shoot people. They, they don't get into yeah. car chases. Yeah. CS, my wife loves CSI Miami and it's, you have David Crusoe and this oh, Hummer, you know, yeah. chasing people around like, uh, no, they don't break down doors. They don't do it. It's like, they're there after the crime is committed and everything's secured. Yes. And like this is more of a not it's not a forensic question, but like in every episode, the detective, she always draws her gun. And that's not as prevalent as people think. Like this isn't a forensic thing, but I was just like every time, every case does not have a shootout at the end, you know, well, or someone's life is me. And it's great for the show. I love it. But right. I'm like, no. But most people if you're going to get into a shootout, it's the cop on the street. That's where all the action yeah, happens. Oh, yeah, true. You know, they're the ones who respond to the, you know, fill in the blank. You know, they're the ones who respond to the, the robbery in progress. They're the ones, you know, it's like, well, my detective, you know, responded to this robbery. No, they didn't. You know, they showed up after everything is secured. A sergeant and the cops go to the bank, to the silent alarm. The detective does not. Unless it's a smaller department and they augment, yeah. you know, patrol. But patrol are the ones who are the, we call the detectives second and third responders. They're like, oh, nice of you to join us. Uh -huh. uh, just to kind of rub it in a little bit. But yeah. there are certain drug units where detectives um, detectives will kind of run in and gun in with the cops. But, you know, those are like plainclothes assignments where they're wearing jeans and T-shirts and like maybe like an anti-gang unit or a drug unit where they are going to get into shootouts and they're going to get into chases because they're like right on the front line. But say a homicide detective, you know, like I said, they show up afterwards. They do the investigating. You know, they'll try and hunt down the person. But a lot of times, you know, we'd get the call and it's like, hey, we're going to be looking for this homicide suspect. Come along with us. They want uniforms and they want, you know, people there. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, the idea of the lone wolf detective that, you know, shows up at everything and just... No, that's she never has backup. I'm like, oh, for crying out loud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the biggest dude that I know would want an army of backup if you're going after a homicide yeah. suspect. You know, it's like, no. Uh -uh. So that reminded else? me of, oh, yeah, there's one more thing. And I think okay. this, and it can affect like when people write their books. Like all of my favorite shows like have this, what I call this all-in-one forensic person that knows everything about everything. And I'm like, like so Ella and Lucifer or Garcia in uh Criminal Minds, or I think her name is Abby in NCIS. Oh, yeah, the, the girl who likes Slurpees. Anything forensic-related, they can figure it out somehow. But, like, forensic science is highly specialized. Like, I wouldn't do DNA and then go do firearms or go do toxicology or, okay. or anything like that. And then, like, there's what I call, like, the traditional forensic disciplines that are, like, in the crime lab. And then kind of the specialists, so, like entomology like looking for bugs like that's a whole thing outside of the crime lab you have like special like people with phds or like forensic like bite marks like that's sure those are dentists you know like it's not right. this all in one or tire treads like 
Oh. Ella, she did like DNA and she did tire treads and she did something else. And I'm like, no. So that's not that's not how it works either. And so I think that my my cousin people. Vinny tire tracks solved the crime. That, that cracked the case. Oh yeah, I don't remember it, it, that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, All yeah, right. So. so those are the biggies that kind of bug you. Yeah, the things that stick out the most. Okay. All right. Well, tell you what, I think that's a good spot to stop our interview for now. We'll probably okay. do this again, I'm thinking. There's a whole lot of stuff we could talk oh, yeah. about. <laughs> Oodles. Um, you bet. So, to remind people, where can they find you and what's in the future here for Melissa? Okay, so the name of my website and blog is flowersandforensics.com. So, right now I have about 17 or 18 posts. So I'm going to start posting again. I'm also, I'm, I'm an editor, a freelance editor. So I do copy editing and I do like, I call it forensic fact checking. So like I can do like a beta read of your book and sort of the consulting is sort of included okay. in all of that. And I also, what else? Oh, I'm developing. I think it won't be until late summer, a forensic DNA for fiction writers course. Okay. Um, so that people can get the information they need. So, Okay. But my contact information is on the contact uh, page of the website. Okay. And you are in my uh, Facebook group, Cops and Writers. You chime uh, in yes. and you're an admin. So anytime oh, you want to post anything, feel free. Yeah, I, I just, I recently moved. So I'm still getting kind of all settled in. So I kind of gotcha. do that first. And I'm hoping to do lots of content and stuff for everyone. So. All right. Fantastic. All right. I think this is a good spot to uh stop our interview thank you melissa for hanging out with us today i appreciate it and thank you guys for listening and we will see you the next time i hope you enjoyed episode number four of the cops and writers podcast thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show thank you forensic dna analyst melissa krakenmeyer for being on the show today it was a lot of fun hearing how things actually happen in real life when it comes to analyzing dna and other facets of for forensic science Thanks to all of you who support my work, either through buying my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. Just type in Cops and Writers in the search bar and you'll find them. Being a patron at patreon.com forward slash Cops and Writers. Participating in my Cops and Writers Facebook group. Hiring me as a consultant for your work. Or visiting me at my website, copsandwriters.com. Thank you so much. Before I go, could I, could you do me a favor? Could you please subscribe to the Cops and Writers podcast and leave a review, please? It would be so helpful, and it makes sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast. That's it for now. Thanks again, and let's be careful out there.